friends, Romans, countrymen, let me ears, ladies and gentlemen. You are tuned to the MC Lars Podcast. It is episode 74. It is Monday, January 27th. Today's interview is with Marshall Carper, an entrepreneur, designer, writer, cool dude. Before we get into that, I wanted to read a poem that I've been thinking about. It's by Edgar Allan Poe. It's called El Dorado. It's one of Poe's last poems. Gaily bedight, a gallant knight, in sunshine and in shadow, had journeyed long, singing a song in search of El Dorado. But he grew old, the knight so bold, and over his heart a shadow, fell as he found a spot of ground that looked like El Dorado. And as his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be, this land of El Dorado? Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow, ride, boldly ride, the shade replied, if you seek for El Dorado. Great poem. That poem is about growing old. It's also inspired by the gold rush, how everyone from the East Coast in the late 1840s was coming to California. And I wanted to read it because it's a special poem to me. As I said on the podcast, I'm doing an Edgar Allan Poe LP. I'm doing a Kickstarter this spring to help uh, pay for the production and the music videos. And I want to do a song about that poem because it's one of Poe's more thoughtful poems. It's grounded in history with the reference to the gold rush. And it makes me think about Silicon Valley and the internet and all the promise of the technological revolution that led to all the way culture has been accelerated, changed. We've been connected, marginalized people have been given a voice, but we've been distracted. We're hyper aware of every little thing. We have FOMO. There's good and bad that comes with social media. And I never want to be one of those old people that's like, well, technology, blah, blah, blah. No, because I think technology is a good thing. I mean, I have certainly wouldn't be doing music for a living if it weren't for the internet revolution. You guys wouldn't be listening to this podcast. We wouldn't have this direct connection. So that's beautiful. But in the technological journey of my career and my life, and in all of our lives, we meet people who are important, who have an effect on us, and we are able to create this synergy that couldn't happen without the internet. Which brings us to our guests. Marshall Carper is an interesting guy. We met because he'd heard of my music years ago, and then we connected because he worked with this company, Center Steel. Also, shout out to Nick and Anthony at Center Steel. Um, and they did the MC Lars games, the first one and the second one. And Marshall was very patient and very professional about and helping like oversee the project, getting all the marketing assets together. It was fun working with him on that. And I really appreciated his time and his energy. And we've kept in touch. And he wrote some books. He sent them to me. I enjoyed them. We talked about it. One is about marketing. The other is about the time he spent on the big island of Hawaii studying and training in MMA. So we get into all that. And uh, Marshall's a cool guy. So yeah, why did I read that poem? Well, I thought it kind of resonated with like the you know, the kind of monkey's paw gift that is internet and Silicon Valley and the technological revolutions. But out of that comes connection, friendship, like independent creators. And so, yeah, I thought that poem would be tight. It's been on my mind. Okay, this week's episode would not exist if it weren't for the generosity of the MC Lars patrons. For only $4 a month, you can get two brand new MC Lars songs a month that you won't hear anywhere else. You get access to my whole back catalog and you get close to 100 downloads of all the other patreon songs you might not have heard i'm doing the marvel cinematic universe my loki song is coming out next week and i want to shout out karina kathy and andy the new supporters on patreon i call them the patreon larsons and shout out to the old ones roger smith anthony martin and anton you can sign up patreon.com slash mc lars i'm going on tour nerdcoretour.com with the double clicks and Schaefer the dark lord the double clicks are only on the last week but it starts 
uh, February 5th in Boston. Then we go to Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Carborough, Orlando, Atlanta, Austin, Dallas, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Minneapolis, Chicago, Cleveland, Ann Arbor, Columbus, and we end in Rochester. It's the Baby Yoda 2020 campaign trail. We got new music. I'm playing guitar. All sorts of cool, fun. It's a different kind of tour. It's a fun tour. It's fun to be headlining. And uh, come check that out. It's my only tour of the year. So let's get into it. This is my interview with my homie, my collaborator, my friend, Marshall Carper, right here on the MC Lars Podcast. Before we get into that, we mentioned this on the podcast, but I wanted to make sure it is very much uh, underlined. Bite the Bullet is the new game that Mega Cat Studios is producing. So if you can go on Steam and wishlist it, it will help the game get more features and more attention. I wanted to do that shout out. Bite the Bullet, if you're on Steam, wishlist it. You know I will, and it sounds awesome. That's their new game and the documentary that's coming out, a game about... Well, where you eat stuff and shoot it out as bullets, but they're making a documentary about the history of food in video games. That's dope as heck. Okay, here's our interview with Marshall Carper. Chill. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with entrepreneur... Martial artist, artist, businessman, Marshall Carper. What's up, dude? How's it going, Lars? Um, the last time I saw you was Player Omega Festival in Southern California, and um, y'all pitched a uh, you pitched a startup idea, right? Yeah. Well, really, the last time I saw you was after the pitch. You were up on stage and you pointed oh. at me in the crowd, and I had a major <laughs> fangirl moment. It was uh, you were up there killing it, and I got the shout out. It was pretty exciting. That's tight. I'm glad I got to give you a shout out because I've known you forever. But tell me how the pitch went. Tell me about that that project, if you want, unless it's proprietary. No, no. So um, we went out to Player Omega. Uh, it's a new esports event they just launched last year. So this was a couple months ago. It was the end of 2019. Um, and they're, they're aiming to do like a touring esports event where they go city to city, bring esports tournaments and other video game culture sorts of things to uh, to locations across the country. And I think eventually they plan to expand it internationally, but this is kind of the flagship event. Um, it, was, it was a pretty cool scene. We were part of a pitch competition. We were pitching one of our retro products. So quick background there. Uh, Mega Cat Studios, we're based in Pittsburgh. Um, we do video game development. We're an indie video game developer. One of our weird specialties is that we do new retro games. So this, these are uh, new games for old consoles. So these are games that are brand new content experiences, but they play on the Nintendo, the Super Nintendo, the Genesis. We've also done some weird projects like Dreamcast and things like that. So that's uh, kind of a big passion project for our team. But then we also do modern releases. So we have some modern games coming out and we've done things like VR and AR as well. So they're kind of... Um Reverse engineered so you can play it on like an old school NES console, right? Like some of the games. Yeah, so it it's um, yeah. it's a little bit of reverse engineering because the development side, and this is 100% not me getting credit for this. We have some some really smart people on our team that that make this possible. Uh, developing for like the Nintendo or the Super Nintendo is super weird because most of the time you're working in assembly, which is not a pleasant programming language, uh, or so I'm told. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, pretty archaic at this stage. It's hard to find people that still program in assembly or even program in C. Some of our projects end up being programmed in C. So it's a really steep learning curve. 
And the other challenge is there's no documentation for the hardware that we're working with. So the Super Nintendo and the NES, if you have trouble with like a sound driver on the Super Nintendo, there's nobody to call <laughs> or talk to. Uh, our founder, our founder James, he basically describes it as if you run into a problem, you kind of just sit in a dark room and sigh deeply and think for a while to try to figure out what the next option might be. So it's right. a it's a strange challenge, um, but the people at MegaCat, uh, the team members I'm blessed to work with, we've been able to do a lot of innovation to get a lot more out of these consoles than you could 20 years ago. And some of that means clever programming techniques. Other times that means clever uses of our own hardware that we kind of map to the systems. It's a super nerdy endeavor, um, and it's a, it's a fraction of what we do, but it's probably one of the most interesting things that we do. So what's the programming language again? The first one you mentioned? Assembly. So did they use assembly when they did like Super Mario Brothers or is it kind of a new? Oh, they did. Yeah, back oh, wow. in the day. So it's kind of like hopping in a time machine and programming yeah. with the tools that they had. But also the cool part is the, the theory of programming has evolved so much so that there's some interesting new ways to use memory and to use the, the logic of the system to get more out of it. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool, and I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about, and I really don't. That's pretty far from my personal expertise. Uh, it's something I get really excited that's happening, though, because uh, these are pretty creative people in their own right, and they have a skill set that I just really admire. Something interesting about you is that you straddle the engineering worlds and the marketing worlds, and you're also an author. And I remember a few years ago, I read your book about studying MMA in on the Big Island of Hawaii. Did I meant, did I summarize that correctly? Yeah, that that's pretty yeah. good. That that's pretty close. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean my my career, if you want to call it that, I've never really had a real job. Um, it's always been kind of independent, creative pursuits, trying to string together project to project and figure out what the next new challenge is, what the next new passion is. Um, and a big start in my career, I was doing MMA journalism. So at that time, mixed martial arts, UFC was relatively new. So a young freshman in college could start doing some freelancing and actually get into some some decent magazines and get some decent exposure because nobody was really doing it at that time. But there was mm. a, an appetite for it. So as part of that, I ended up uh, moving from Pittsburgh to Hawaii for six months to train with BJ Penn. He's UFC champion. Uh, and he had a gym out there and got to really dive deep into a culture that I didn't know. So I knew like Hawaiian culture was different, but I didn't know how complex it was. And I didn't know um, how challenging, I didn't know how challenging kind of the evolution into modern society had been for the Hawaiian people and what mm. that meant culturally. So for, for people that aren't familiar, think about pretty much everything that's happened to any native, any native people anywhere, whether we're talking about uh, Native Americans, whether we're talking about Inuits, um, any, anybody, any culture that's experienced the wrong end of, of colonization and the challenges that they face. And the mm -hmm. ripples of that are still very real in Hawaii. Um, it impacts everything from socioeconomics to literacy levels to, to, uh, substance abuse levels and all this stuff I didn't know going in and it ended up becoming a pretty world changing perspective changing experience for me being kind of surrounded by that culture and these people. And this, cause the stereotype often people have about Hawaii's beaches and, and coconuts and, and I mean like there isn't, yeah, there isn't this, 
realization that there is this cultural identity for people who are truly Hawaiian versus people who who are who have colonized it versus the tourism. It's very interesting, and and the Big Island especially. I went there summer of 2013 to visit a friend, noticing that it's got a very different energy, you know, than the other islands. It's a very locals feeling kind of place, but you living there six months, Marshall, did it feel like you were local by the end or how did that feel? Um, I was fortunate enough because of the gym connection that I had to almost people had to be friends with me. So I, um, cause I was training six hours a day every day. So I was surrounded by a lot of the same people for long periods of time. And with that kind of training, it's hard not to get to know someone if you're just right. kind of present. So I was fortunate enough to meet some really great people that, that lived locally and they showed me around and, and took me in and helped me out. Like I didn't have a car. I was super broke. I was eating ramen noodles and oatmeal literally for every meal of the day. So I, I was wow. blessed to have some people that would cook me dinner once in a while or give me a ride once in a while because I was always walking back and forth, uh, back and forth to the gym. Um, so I had a, a little bit of a different experience than someone who just visits in a more traditional way. And the the culture side of it, I mean, if you think about a culture that's very family driven, very tradition driven, very, uh, very legacy driven, the mm. idea that you can't afford to live on the land that your family's lived on for generations, that's a, that's a pretty painful thing to, to, to see that happen and also see the history be threatened. The Hawaiian language was almost lost at one point. So really intense stuff. And when you see someone show up and trash your beach because they're only there for a week and take off, it's easy for some pretty, pretty difficult feelings to start surfacing. And the side you were on is you, you were on the side near Hilo, right? Yeah, so I, I lived in Hilo, and to yeah. uh, to frame that up for the listeners, so if you think of the Big Island, that's the the far island on the right, the end of the chain. It's it's the biggest. Go figure. Um, there's a, a rainy side and a dry side. So the rainy side's Hilo. That's that's the far right of the Big Island. So basically, the rainier it is, the less likely it is to be a tourist destination because it's really difficult to kind of predict what your experience is going to be like. And there's also not a whole lot of sandy beaches on the rainy side. It's a lot more rocky beaches. So the, uh, the other side of the island, the, the west side is the Kona, and Kona tends to be a little bit more touristy, but even then it's nowhere near as touristy as like an, an Oahu or a Maui, some of the other islands that are more popular for beaches and surfing and things like that. So it was, uh, for the most part, it was people that lived and worked there and not a whole lot of a, a, a mind towards let's build tourist attractions or let's serve tourists or let's build up big hotels, that sort of thing. Cause you were studying abroad at um, university of Hawaii, right? University Is of Hawaii at Hilo. Yeah. Holler. Yeah. That's so cool, man. Um, and also speaking of colonization and like the lack of patience for that. I remember I went, um, we went kayaking at uh, captain cook beach and saw where he was killed and where his heart was eaten because they wouldn't, they tried to take the ship back, right? They tried. They they loaned a boat, but they claimed it was theirs. Do you know the story of that that more than I do? Uh, I I think you're close on it. Um, yeah, it's been a little bit since I did that that research. So I don't want to recount that story inaccurately. Um, there's a lot of wild stuff in the history of uh, Hawaii's colonization. Um, they like locked up the queen at one point. Um, there's a big argument that Hawaii was illegally annexed. 
uh, mm. because there was a marine presence that invaded what was then a sovereign state and basically kind of forced Hawaii to become a state. Um, there's actually a, a presidential apology for that uh, s- several decades later. And when I say several decades, I mean like three decades later. We're talking stuff that occurred this century. So it's not a, um, well, I guess this previous century. <laughs> um, this is this is not yeah. ancient history. These are things that there's people alive that can remember these things happening or they were kids when this when this this kind of uh, this kind of what many perceive as a cultural attack was happening. So the dude you studied under, you trained under, your Jedi master, was he a Hawaiian native? Or remind me that, like, or why, why did he have the gym on the Big Island? Yeah, so the uh, so the Penn family uh, is is Hawaiian. Um, their their mother's Hawaiian. Uh, their dad was military. So I went to train with BJ Penn, UFC champion. Um, so I thought I was going to be spending most of my time with BJ. But really, and this ended up being a blessing in disguise for many reasons, I spent most of my time training with his older brother, Jay. So uh, Jay is not a not a superimposing figure. He's like 145 pounds, has uh, has asthma that meant he's had like sections of his lungs stapled off. So mm. he has a, a pretty incredible story in his own right. Um, and because of those challenges and because he's not the ultra athlete that some of his brothers are, his technique and his approach to jujitsu is a lot more thoughtful. Um, and he's also... You know, I found him to be the best teacher because he was able to explain how to solve challenges and how to solve problems. So I spent most of my time with Jay, and then I also spent a good bit of time with uh, another jiu-jitsu coach there, Hinato Verissimo. He was also a former UFC fighter. Uh, his, his nickname was Sherudo, which means cigar in, in Brazilian Portuguese because he was, like, super long, super tall. So they called him, uh, they, they called him cigar. Yeah. Uh, Brazilians, they got <laughs> interesting sense of humor. He played like water polo back in the day or something and got that nickname. Wow. So I, I technically went there for BJ, but I spent most of my time, uh, with the other teachers at the gym because BJ was doing his UFC thing and he was pretty busy. Um, where can people find this book? Because I'm sure some listeners are going to want to know more about your story. Sure. So the cauliflower chronicles it's on Amazon. Feel free to pick it up. Uh, digital and print. So whatever you prefer, you can snap, snag it there. That's what's up. Um, what do you love about MMA? Oh, wow. Um, at this point, it's been a long time. So I wrote that book 10 years ago. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been, it's been quite a journey since then. Um, and where MMA and martial arts and jujitsu fit in my life has really evolved over time. So at this point, my body's totally destroyed. Uh, there's no chance that I can really compete in any meaningful way because of the injuries that I've had. I'm just not blessed genetically, unfortunately. Um, so at this point, it's more about my students and the community that I can be a part of. And I used to think it was about trying to be famous or trying to be popular, well-known, sell a bunch of books. But at this stage, jujitsu makes me happiest when I can show up at the gym hang out with a bunch of people that are just happy to train normal guys, normal, normal, normal women, normal people that are there in a kind of a hobbyist capacity. Um, they're there to learn, they're there to improve, but they're, uh, they're there to be better in their own way, not necessarily get the riches of being a pro fighter or something like that. Um, mm. so at this point, that's really what motivates me the most and gets me most interested. And it's kind of had to 
had to shift where it fits in my life. Um, I'm married now. I was very not married in the Call of Duty Chronicles. Uh, and I've got a different kind of career that I'm pursuing and, and other kind of responsibilities to, to stay on top of. I still do a little bit of the UFC coaching. So um, Kama Worthy is a UFC standout. He just had a big knockout for his, um, his UFC debut. And I have a very, very, very small part to play in his success. Um, but I get to kind of be in his orbit. So that's cool too. That's tight. You know, it's funny, Marshall. It's like back in the day, it seemed there was this stratification and delineation between like, if you're a tech person, if you're a nerd versus you're a, a jock, like there's this, or into into fitness or whatever. There's this joke that people will say, "Oh yeah, I don't get I don't get uh, sports. I call it sports ball." Blah blah blah. People are kind of <laughs> have this kind of bias against that. But what's so cool is I I feel like you kind of defy that stereotype and you show how barriers in our culture have been broken down. And I would consider you nerdy in a way, but also you're like nerdy and that you're very much into the sport and you're in good shape and you take care of yourself. And so I think that's a cool message for our listeners that you as a, as a featured guest can be all things. And, uh, yeah. And, and physical fitness is so important. I find when I go to the gym, like I, I'm a swimmer and I do spinning and yoga. And when I do that and when my weights down, I'm so much happier and my output so much is so much better. And I think it's like, yeah, I think as nerdy people, we should encourage people to really take care of their health. Don't you think so? I, I, I agree completely. Um, but I also found a weird cheat code in that sense. Um, Brazilian <laughs> jiu-jitsu is probably one of the nerdiest sports I could have picked to be involved in. Um, yeah. So to, to kind of frame that for you, are you familiar with uh, Josh Waitzkin, uh, chess prodigy, wrote The Art of Learning? Oh, yeah. I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, and he was he was the he was the, the subject for finding searching for Bobby Fisher, like, like the chess prodigy kid that that movie was about. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so super nerd also jujitsu black belt. And he also pioneered in, in the jujitsu world, exchanging techniques by video is now like a really big thing. Um, it's a big part of how people learn and how people kind of share what they're working on. Innovation's a big part of jujitsu. So when YouTube blew up, jujitsu really blew up. There's like a big evolution in, in technique and theory and, and how people learned and how people communicated about the art. And, uh, and Josh with, um, Marcelo Garcia is a more famous jujitsu black belt. They built this really complex database of techniques where basically they film Marcelo teaching every day and then they tag, they like tag every timestamp in the video of what techniques happening when and what he's teaching. And then they have this big interwoven database of videos where you can search by technique, search by position, search by frequency, search by challenge. And you can, you can really uh, explore what's now several thousand hours of video in a wow. pretty interactive way. And that sounds like the nerdiest thing ever when you describe <laughs> it, right? <laughs> like, like, like data crunching jujitsu. Um, right. And that's, uh, that that's a big part of the sport at this point is is technology. Um, Magic the Gathering is also super popular among jujitsu folks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot <laughs> of a uh, lot of really competitive athletes that in between matches are playing magic with each other. So <laughs> it, yeah. I don't think I've totally uh, escaped the nerd. I think I just found a way to be a secret nerd and and uh, try to realize my my dream of being the Karate Kid or being a superhero in some capacity. That's what's up. So <laughs> that's cool. So it it combines the worlds. And I know um, like com some competitive 
rappers like Mac Lethal is really into uh, jujitsu. Yeah, and, and people uh, like that. Maynard Keenan from I think that think I think he the band Tool. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, he's uh, he's jujitsu guy. There's also a video of him like choking somebody that rushed the stage at like somebody jumped on the stage and he choked him out. Um, <laughs> it's, it's become a, a pretty, pretty standard part of culture at this point. Um, especially on the West coast, uh, East coast has grown a lot over the years, but if you're a celebrity and you're living in LA, it's kind of like Starbucks. There's a jujitsu gym on every corner. You can find some place to train pretty easily. That's tight. Um, what did you, what was your undergrad in? So, uh, creative writing okay yeah and i that's tight, that's tight. <laughs> yeah i mean i say that with a little bit of trepidation because anytime i have to answer that question with anybody else i know someone like you can appreciate it i just get this quizzical look of like well that was a waste of time why would you ever <laughs> what, what value would you ever get out of majoring in creative writing right right yeah. close-minded people might say that yeah, I mean it's practical uh, people. <laughs> well, I mean it's um yeah the 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 liberal arts and understanding how to communicate and I think more so understanding how to learn because how much have have has things changed as you and I have been in our respective careers? I mean it's light years away from where things were five years ago, let alone ten, fifteen years ago, right? So totally. to be able to continue to thrive and find new audiences and and grow. You have to be willing to research and be open-minded about stuff and willing to experiment. And I feel like, you know, as, as much crap as like, I know STEM education is popular right now, but I think there's still a big need for literature. I think there's still a big need for writing. I think there's still a big need for, for journalism and that kind of thinking that comes with it. Because if we are, it's like, you can't have, I agree with you, man. It's like, you can't have the NES without any games, like the metaphor, you can't have the hardware without the software. The humanity is kind of like the software that keeps this mechanism of, of our species going, I guess the stories, the, you know, the, the music, everything. Like I'm a big advocate of that. And I think that hip hop is an interesting way to connect technology with the humanities. And that's why I'm such a fan of like using hip hop as a way to teach about um, literature. But as a creative writer, like you deal in the as major, you deal in that too, the intersection of storytelling and technology. And one great example of that is our game. The two games that, that um, you, I worked on with you guys. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how that came about because I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with MC Lars and the Brotherhood. Uh, yeah. So um, the story's pretty easy from my side. Uh, it was with a previous company that I had semi co-founded. There were two brothers that were already working together and I kind of jumped in with them. Uh, Nick and Anthony, uh, super smart, super smart individuals. And they um, they were looking for ways they could have a bigger impact with the creativity that they were doing. So as we were looking at some of the innovations that were happening in games at the time, uh, we started looking at this idea of a rhythm-based game, and maybe there's a way to impact music culture with the game to kind of capture the feeling. Because like when you're listening to a song that really connects with you, there's an emotional interactivity there. I don't know if maybe that's just me, but that's something that um, I feel like there's a bigger two-way connection between listening to music between a listener and music than a lot of people really give credit for. So we thought, what if we found a way to harness that in the game, to turn that into a game mechanic? 
And I was like, well, you know what? I listen to a lot of MC Lars and <laughs> Lars is also always doing really weird stuff. So I bet you I might have a crack at getting him to be on board with a project that's a little, little off the beaten path. So I reached out and uh, I, I fangirled again and uh, we, we started getting the conversation going. It was, it was pretty cool stuff. That's tight. And I remember I was like, I was intrigued and excited and I was so impressed when it finally came together. And I know it was like a process of bringing our visions together and like how to, how to, how to tell the story. But I think you guys knocked it out of the park and um, yeah, that game is so fun. And I was so stoked when it, when it ended up on steam, that was like a big win. That was dope. Yeah. So at that time there was uh, the, the, uh, the green light process, which has since changed. Um, Steam is now purely a pay for play, a pay, pay to play platform. Um, But at the, a couple years ago, if you wanted to be on steam and you were an independent creator, you go through steam green light, which basically means the community votes on the quality of the game to allow it onto the platform. So it was a pretty big gatekeeping mechanism that Steam has since moved away from. But at the time, it was a, it was a big win to be an independent studio with uh, not a huge catalog and relatively green uh, developers to get a game through. Um, and really, I credit a lot of that to the, the passion of your fans. I mean, they, they came out and, and pushed for us. We had, a, we, we had a good success there. So that was... That was a, a pretty exciting moment for me. That was very much a champagne moment when we finally got through <laughs> got, yeah. got through that process. And that allowed you all to release other games through there, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah. we ended up doing uh, The Brotherhood. Uh, so that was the, the follow-up release. So the first MC Lars game was uh, Solo Act. And then we got to fold in some of your super friends for, for the sequel. Just to kind of just to kind of catch your audience up here that, that might be listening and might not have played, uh, so Center Steel Studios has uh, since gone on without me. I, I stepped away and we wanted to pursue different kinds of projects. So Nick and Anthony are still plugging away doing some cool games. So you sh- you should check out Center Steel if you're listening. Um, then a couple years later, uh, Mega Cat Studios reached out to me, and I'm now doing work there on video games. So what is your official title, or do you have one at oh, Mega Cat? Man, oh Mega Cat. Uh, sometimes they call me the lead cat. Sometimes they call me the marketing <laughs> cat. Uh, on my business yeah. card, it says director of brand engagement. Okay. That's tight. That yeah. makes sense. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds official. Sounds respectable. That's really, really what we're after. Um, you are an entrepreneur and entrepreneur, and I consider myself one too. And we're in the business of betting on ourselves. I read that somewhere. Like we stat the chips and we roll, roll the roulette wheel and how well we've engineered that roulette wheel with this, 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 and that um, is how we kind of, we live and die by that. And, and the benefit is we're in control of our time. Like we can do a podcast at, well, on a, on a Wednesday morning, you know, like stuff like that. But the other side of it is it's kind of, I don't know, we aren't like, an employee that punches a clock and gets all these benefits for aligning with a bigger entity. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about like, why, why did you, why have you become an entrepreneur and was that intentional or was it just cause it kind of fit your talents and curiosity? Uh, it was not intentional. Um, so I grew up under that blueprint of you go to college, you do well in college, you graduate, you get the job, you get the benefits, and then you kill it there for a couple decades and you retire. 
white picket fence, like that's the way that you would find success in life. So that did not work out for me. Um, I graduated in 2009. So it was the depths of the housing Mm. crisis and the recession that ensued. So nobody was getting hired. (laughs) Um, And the people that were applying for jobs, uh, there was a pretty dark time for for a lot of folks had it way worse than I did. There were people applying for entry-level jobs that had 20 years of experience just because the economy was that difficult for them. So me as a fresh graduate, especially as a fresh graduate with uh, a bit of a weird skill set. So coming in as a creative creative writing major, um, on paper, it's kind of hard to figure out who I am and what I do. Uh, it's a tricky thing that I've had to grapple with for, for a lot of my career. So when I graduated, finding a real job didn't happen. So I was freelancing already. So I kept freelancing, just thinking the new, the real job will come, the real job will come. And a couple of years later, I turned around and kind of realized that I had a business and that I was the business and that this was the path that I was on. Um, and to emphasize that I've had headhunters call me just based on like LinkedIn searches and then when they get my background, they tell me point blank that they don't think I could ever survive in a traditional office environment. So like, <laughs> thanks for the conversation, but you're definitely not going to, to stay here. Because it, it's like, it's the kind of things you talk about, creative freedom, uh, the autonomy, the ability to set your own goals, and also the ability to push as hard as you want and selecting the people that are around you that are pushing as well. But yeah, I, I have a question for you though, that I'm curious about something that that I've, I've often had to struggle with. Do you feel like it's all consuming because you are independent? Do you feel like it's hard to ever kind of shut the office door and have a normal life? Do you feel like it's always on for you? I think it's always on. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think I have to purposefully at a certain point, right at night, t- turn it off. Like last night, my wife was home, came home and we were she was telling me about everything and I was like, oh, I got, and in my head I was like, I got to edit this video. I got to do this. I got to do that. And then I was like, oh, well, I can, that can wait. And that's like an asset to avoid burnout. I mean, it can be all consuming, but I think for survival, you learn how to disengage, how to be kind of a social media minimalist, except when you're needing to promote something, you know? And yeah, how about you? What have you found? Uh, it's still... It still all consumes me. <laughs> yeah. Um, the 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 work life balance is a work in progress for me. Uh, it's been it you know, to your point. Uh, it's been a, a challenge in my marriage because we'll be sitting at dinner, we having a good time, and then something with a client project catches on fire, and my email's blown up. So I got to step away at eight o'clock at night to to deal with it, or. I have to travel a lot. I know you travel like crazy. You travel way more than I do, but just doing like the gaming convention, the gaming convention circuit or traveling for business meetings. Um, sometimes it can feel like you're on the road more than you're at home. And that's also difficult for, for turning it off. Cause when you're on the road, it's basically 24 seven cause you're not living a, a, a real life at that point. You're like in this weird, <laughs> this weird bubble that's traveling with you. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's it's a challenge because I think part of it is I feel like if I don't put that extra effort in, it's all going to fall apart around me because I'm making that bet. If I'm making that bet, I literally have to put everything I have into it. Otherwise, it all might collapse. Yeah, and I think Marshall, that fear is what it's what allows everything to function. I mean, I think as an artist. If you stop having that fear and you're like, oh, I made it. I don't have to work so hard on my music, blah, blah, blah. That's when you fall off and that's when fans stop coming to see you. If you like, you know, if you give up on that, like 
commitment and appreciation for every opportunity, I think that defines who can have longevity as an entrepreneurial person versus who doesn't, right? Like I always try to think this is an opportunity and none, none of this is certain. This is like all circumstantial, like all of my successes and um, yeah. And, and, and I think also, and I know, noticed this about you, you're a very nice, good person. And I think that that's important. Like, I, I don't know. I believe that people pick up on that. And when you're your own business, the challenge for me is, is proving that it's authentic, that I'm not just like manipulative and, and putting on a, a, a nice face to get what I want. I actually care about the people I work with, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think there's uh the big philosophy for me is take care of the people that take care of you. So trying to push as much of that, that, that goodness out into the world and see what comes back. I'm not really a spiritual or a religious person, but I would like karma to be a thing. So on the chance that it is, I'm just going to keep, <laughs> I'm going to keep uh, putting money into that bank and, and see what, see what comes out of it. Um, Cause it's also part of it too. It, these are competitive spaces that we're in. Um, and there's a lot of talented people in those spaces. And there's also a lot of awful people in these kinds of spaces because there's big money to be made in music. There's big money to be made in video games. And sometimes that can bring out the best in people and other times it brings out the worst. So at the end of the day, if I'm going to end up failing and I don't end up reaching whatever this big goal is in front of me, I at least want to feel like a, I gave it my best shot. My best means all my energy, all my focus, all my attention. And I gave it the full swing that I could and I also be want to feel like I did it in a way that I can live with, right? Mm. So not cutting corners, not cheating anybody, not mistreating anybody. Uh, I don't want there to be any, if I do find success, I don't want there to be any black marks on it. I want it to be a, an honest win because that's the only win that really counts for me. So it's, uh, it's hard. A lot of times I'm sure you've encountered this kind of stuff in your career, but you know, it helps me sleep when I do get to sleep. That's good. Well, it's yeah, I think I metaphor and not to force the the imagery, but like winning an MMA battle, if you win by cheating or like um like doing something the ref doesn't see, you doesn't feel as right, right? <laughs> it, it it devalues yeah. it, right? It yeah, it kind yeah. of um all the effort that you put in and also all the people that helped you get there, it it devalues them as well. I mean, cuz people put faith and trust in you, whether it's a fan, whether it's a customer, whether it's a client, family, friends, um, in a lot of ways you have to do right by them as well. That's what's up. Um, do you, so mega cat, how many hours are you there? Like 40 hours a week or, or more is it, it's like your full-time thing, right? So I straddle my time between a content marketing agency, carpet communications and mega cat studios. So the marketing agency, um, social media, blogging, email marketing, that kind of stuff. And then mega cat studios doing video game development at this point, it's hard to separate them. Um, there's a lot of crossover mm. uh, to the point that we're probably going to have some sort of official merger eventually. Because on the Mega Cat side, we do a lot of brand-based games. So a brand will hire us to make a video game that's that's client-facing, that's customer-facing, that they use as a marketing tool. And that turns into a lot of, a lot of weird stuff, uh, not what you think of traditionally as a video game. So for example, we've been doing like arcade cabinets for medical device manufacturers. So like roll them out at a trade show and they play this little like retro heart plaque scraping game. <laughs> um, right, that's it, awesome. Yeah, it, it's, it's goofy stuff. It's a lot of fun to work on. Um, and it, it creates some interesting challenges. So between the two, I'm probably splitting my time about 30, 30, about 30 hours a piece. 
uh, on average. And like I said, it's a blurry line to try to divide that up because it all feels like the same kind of work to me. It feels like I'm using the same brain. It feels like I'm using the same skill sets. It feels like I'm using a lot of the same knowledge. So I don't feel like I'm punching out at one place and punching it at another. It just all feels like the same kind of work. That's cool. I mean, I wonder if you experience this. Sometimes when I'm like writing a song or in the middle of putting together a marketing plan or something, time just slips away and I'm like, oh, it's already three o'clock. I feel like I just woke up. Do you ever experience that? Like the day just flies by? Yeah, those are cool moments. Um, these days, I get those moments more when I'm working with a lot of the, a lot of my teammates, whether that's at the agency or at Megacat. Um really energized by being surrounded by super creative people. So like if I'm sitting down with uh, Zach, he's one of our creative directors or James, the original founder, um, Randy or the Nates, we have two Nates. We also have several Vlads. It's kind of weird, but um, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, I mean, it's being surrounded by people that are incredibly talented and deeply insightful and do so from a perspective that's very different from mine. Cause you had mentioned before Mm. kind of the, the, di- the, the, the dynamic between like the artist and the engineer. Um, I think those lines are pretty blurry as well. I think there's a lot of art and engineering on both sides of that coin. And to work with someone that sees a challenge or an opportunity from a very different perspective because they've spent 20 years, 30 years digging into a, uh, into a unique skill set, uh, that's a blast for me. And that's when mm. time really flies. You know, if we're if we're having if we're having a meeting where we're talking about uh, what zombie meat might taste or feel like, <laughs> and how that right. relates to the feeling we want to build into a game, that's a real conversation, by the way, and we've had that conversation yeah. several times. Um, and just to throw this out here because this is really valuable for your audience, we decided that a certain type of zombie would feel like mayonnaise in a plastic bag. Okay. And we wanted to translate that to what it feels like when you punch or hit that zombie. Right. Like, like sonically or aesthetically? All of it. Right. So that, yeah. that, that feel in the game, not just the art, but the sound, the feedback in the controller, the way the characters move <laughs> when they impact each other. There's, there's a lot of things that go into, go into that feel. And this is all stuff that I've gotten to learn from the people that I'm working with because of the way they That's think tight. about it. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that moment of losing myself in the work a lot of these days comes from being with great people. That's cool. Um, what are, if you can, if you can say, and if this, this is private, you don't have to say, but like, what are the main income streams with Mega Cat? Like I could tell you with me, it's touring is one, merch is one, uh, Patreon and digital income is one. And, and, and then there's like my consulting or doing workshops with schools. That's the pie. And um, that's pretty much it. And anything else, I'm always trying to maximize other streams, but that's when I do my taxes. That's like, oh, that's this is where my income came from. What are the main streams for Mega Cat? Megacat's a, a pretty unique video game company as far as the landscape goes of of indie studios. Um, we're we're larger than a lot of indie studios, but we're also nowhere near like a like a Valve or a Bethesda or something like that. Um, so the way we've structured Megacat and and James, our founder, gets a lot of credit for this. Uh, in the video game world, there's a pretty well known boom bust cycle. Big studios hire up to make a game. The game ships. They lay off everybody. They do it again for the next game, lay off everybody. And it's, it's this uh, pretty painful cycle for the talent involved because you're always kind of trying to find your next project. There's always kind of an ax looming over you. So when James founded Megacat, he knew from the get-go that he didn't want culture to be that way. 
and he, if he found great people, he wanted to keep great people. So as we've, to your point, to get to the revenue streams, with the way MegaCat's grown, we have the the brand-facing arms where brands are hiring us to make video games. And these are, these days, uh, pretty big brands, which is exciting. Um, brands that you've probably seen documentaries about uh, we're getting to make games for. So that's, that's pretty rewarding. So we have this client-facing side that's doing work, and that's typically where I live just because of my marketing background. So client-facing work. And then we have our digital sales. So... Almost every game that we release is out on Steam, Xbox, PlayStation, Switch. Uh, the Switch ecosystem has been very good for us. Those fans, just because of our retro ethos, I think, those fans line up really well. And that's a part of our income stream. And then we also have a huge physical presence. So because we do the cartridges, we have a pretty deep catalog of retro games. So the retro enthusiasts, the fans that are big collectors, that are still playing on original hardware, that sounds like it's a really small niche. Um, it's much, much larger than a lot of outsiders would give it credit for, and it's growing. Mm. The The metrics mm. on it are pretty crazy. That industry is expanding pretty aggressively to the point that the GameStop's announced they're doing retro-only stores. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> so it's a, it's a pretty <laughs> big audience. So on the physical merch side, uh, that's, that's a big part of our growth as well. So... We do like full in box set to get the cart, the manual, the box. And if you get a special edition, like we've done cartridges out of wood. We've done cartridges with built-in LCD screens that turn on when you plug them into the Super Nintendo. Uh, we have some of that kind of stuff that we sell as well. So those That's are the, cool. like the three main pillars for us. Um, are there any projects that you've announced that you can talk about that you're like particularly stoked on? Or is everything private? Oh, no, I'm, uh, I'm really stoked about Bite the Bullet. Uh, Bite the Bullet comes out the end of February. We're launching it at, at, uh, at, at PAX East, but it'll be available uh, worldwide. Um, I think it's February 20th is the release date. Uh, I should know this if I'm the marketing guy. Um, but the end of February, Bite the Bullet, you can wishlist it on Steam now. That'd be a super, super big help if you did that. So Bite the Bullet is a run and gun and eat. So all of the enemies are edible and your dietary choices drive how you play the game. So what you eat drives your skill trees, it drives your crafting, how you manage your calories drives how fast or how uh, durable your character ends up being. If you bulk up, if you're eating a lot of calories and not moving a lot, um, your crafting occurs in your stomach and then you then you puke up the weapon that you've made. <laughs> Yeah, th this, bite the bullet. I get it. Yeah, That's cool. this is where the uh, this is where the zombie meat conversation started, and the zombie conversation actually kind of dovetailed into what uh, what what a character that just ate everything he saw would mean. So you can eat robots, you can eat zombies, you can eat mutant <laughs> plants, uh, you can eat all the bosses that you fight. It's a it's a pretty wild game, really fast action with deep RPG mechanics behind it. That sounds awesome. Can I tell I'm, you? I'm sold. I, I, yeah. I, got, I got some weirder stuff to tell you. Um, yeah. We have a documentary coming out with it. So the, oh, cool. The documentary should release at the same time as the game. Um, the documentary is all about the history of food and video games. So, wow. Yeah, we got to interview some competitive eaters, some celebrity chefs. Uh, we interviewed the LA Beast. He's pretty popular on, on YouTube. He ate light bulbs for one of his videos. Um, so he's like a real life robovore. Robovore is what we call someone that eats robots exclusively. Right. <laughs> what's what's so what's the first game to feature food? Pac-Man? Well, if you I go guess. if you go way back, technically it's Mouse in the Maze, which was on like one of those one of those computers that filled a room. 
Um, right. And you have to find cheese in the maze. So that's probably <laughs> the first instance of food. And then when you get yeah. way into it, food as a mechanic has been uh, used in really clever ways uh, over the years. And especially when indies started to rise, you started to see some really cool stuff with food. So the documentary digs into that, digs into the bite the bullet development process, and also explores how people in the food world, like chefs and competitive eaters, think about games and how it influences what they do. What's the name of the documentary? Do bite the it? Bullet. A love letter okay. to food and video games. That's tight. Yeah. Is that, do you have a platform where you're going to release that yet or? Uh, we have our fingers crossed for a particularly big one. Tight. Well, I'll be keeping my fingers crossed too. I appreciate it. I appreciate we'll it. We'll announce when we know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, all recent developments. So hopefully we'll have something, we'll have some good news soon to share. How helpful is it for Mega Cat to have a presence at places like uh, PAX and other video game um, like conventions like that? It's one of the most important things that we do. Um, okay. And me coming in as a digital marketer, I was originally skeptical of it because prior to Mega Cat, a lot of the businesses I'd built and a lot of the business I'd worked with, we would get, generate revenue and sales purely through online tactics. Um, but when you go to these events, and I'm sure this is something that's right in your wheelhouse, it's a totally different kind of connection. Um, spending five minutes with someone at your booth playing your game is a, there's no amount of advertising that can replace that. Um, there's yeah. no amount of, you, you can't, you can't buy that sort of connection with a potential fan and getting to meet your hardcore fans in person and getting to give them extra attention and really have an honest conversation with them. It's probably the most meaningful work that we do. And those events, um, especially the, the, the grassroots style gaming events are doing so much to expand the industry and change the industry in positive ways. That's also culturally really important for us to support those. Cause I feel like they're going to be big players in what video games become in five and 10 years. That's awesome. And there's this awesome fusion then that you're able to build a grassroots audience and then have it be available on systems like switch that are manufactured by the big boys. It's like, it's like universal or, or Sony distributing an indie label, right? It's kind of similar. Yeah. The indie access is, uh, has gotten a lot better. Um, back in the day, there weren't a lot of tools for indies. There weren't a lot of platforms for indies. It was very difficult to do an indie release. Uh, at this stage, even the big players have recognized that indie audiences are powerful. Um, cause we were ultimately we were talking about passionate fans. When you look at uh, an indie title that is made by two or three people, maybe four or five, and you can feel that passion when you play the game, you can feel that sincerity, audiences really respond to that, and they come out and they support it. They turn into super vocal advocates, and they get all their fans. They post on all the forums. They post on Reddit, and it creates this, this pretty big groundswell for for a game that might not really have a marketing budget or might not have had any budget at all. It was just kind of strapped together in, in someone's free time, but it was still a good game. And I think that's, mm. um, I think it's probably true for indie creatives in general at this point, uh, whether we're talking about art or music or video games or books, uh, books is another big, big platform where that happens. Um, it's hard to do now because a lot of people are trying to, but it's still exciting that you can be independent and make a career out of it. You can have an influence that is based on how original the idea is. And I think that's awesome. And how how good you are connecting with humans. And that's like the idea we're talking about, the software versus the hardware thing, right? Like if you're 
I think about this, like, I still believe if a song is awesome enough, it will find an audience without the need of a major label cramming it down people's throats or, or paying payola to get it on radio. It will find an audience if it's a good enough song. And I'll always believe that despite what some negative people might think about the music industry now. Like, and yeah, and so it's similar, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think um, the, the footnote I'd add to that is that doesn't make it easy, right? Just because you, right. you make the great song. I mean, it's a lot of work to go to your shows and build your fans and serve your fans and run your social media and, and, and be present for them. Um, just because that door is open doesn't mean it's easy to get through, even if what you made is good, right? Right, and once you're through, it's, it's, there's a million people pushing, pushing behind you, younger people with new perspective, and that's exciting because it makes you want to like keep your eye on the prize and not look to your side and keep running, you know? Well, that's, a, that's another question I have for you. I mean, at this point, you've made a boatload of music. <laughs> you've, you've produced a ton of content. Um, how, do you, how do you keep chasing that prize? Like what keeps you sitting down to, to compose a new song? Like what, what drives you to keep doing that? Oh, that's a good question, man. I mean, I think I, it's like, you know, when you, when you put your, finger, your thumb on a hose and it shoots f- like faster and further, like more narrow. I try to make specifically themed things. So like the, the Dewey Decibel with Mega Ran or now on Patreon, I'm doing songs about every movie in the MCU. And I'm about to do a Poe LP like based on the EP. So it's like having thematic things is the only thing that can keep me focused because like my last record that I did, that was probably just about whatever would be the zombie dinosaur LP. And after that I was like, Oh, every project I'm going to do now is going to have a theme, you know, a specific. So that that's like, if I'm like, um, addressing something specific, like I did this EP video game right before the holidays, like Mm -hmm. a video game EP, I mean, so that helps, you know, I have to have a specific reason because otherwise i'll just drop a single so yeah i try to think what 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 specific thing am i tying this to versus this is just a collection of songs you know that's that's been my that's helped me and i think that's helped give people a reason to check out my individual projects because you're right i've put out so many things like and people i think are more familiar with the older stuff which is cool because the older stuff has a big audience but i want to give them a reason to hear the new stuff and i guess it's maybe it's similar like trying to find people to come talk to you at a PAX, like getting people to come to your booth. That's a constant thing. And that's how I feel with each release, you know? So anyway, <laughs> uh, I was, I'm just always curious. I mean, comparing notes with other creatives and kind of how you, how you just, just structure your creative output. It's a, uh, it's a weird challenge to pick what you want to work on. Right. Yeah. And I think Marshall, the key is, this is the, talking to people on this podcast and like my experience is creating a box or a fence around whatever you create is going to be interesting and cool no matter what because as soon as you start thinking about the business, are people going to like this? How does, how does this compare to my past work? All the uh, left brain business things, come can, if they come tumbling on you before you've even started, then you're in this stasis of like a writer's block forever. So that's important to be like, for me, it's like, okay, two hours, I'm just doing uh, Mandalorian raps this morning or something like that. Like setting aside that time, setting a stopwatch and like turning off the email and really allowing that childlike uh, creativity and inspiration to foster. And that's really rewarding, like on a personal level. But that, you know, I think so many artists, especially musicians getting started, think about the business and it prevents them from 
getting started. And I think that's why, honestly, it's kind of, sometimes it's easier to get started when you're younger and you're not worried as much about that. I mean, I don't know. That, you know, that's part of it. You can't let the business poison the creativity. Yeah, and, and the it's very different kinds of stakes when you're younger, right? Um, yeah. I mean, when I was... When I was just when it was just me, if I was broke and I was kind of scraping by on on ramen noodles and lived in a terrible place, that was fine. And if things went sideways, I would just have more of that. Um, but now it's like, oh, I'm married. I have a mortgage. I have people that count on me. I have employees that if I mess this up, their lives are going to suffer. So it kind of changes that that creative perspective of, of how you make the make those choices. Um, yeah. in a lot of ways, I think that's been better for me. I think it's helped me be a bit more focused and a bit more thoughtful and deliberate about the choices I make, but it's also sacrifices a little bit of freedom because I can't just drop everything and go work on this one thing that I'm passionate about. I also have to work backwards from the audience that we have and the audience we want to have and think about what might, um, what might excite them and to kind of take this back to mega cat. One of the interesting things about our process is we're always like throwing video game ideas out there and we kind of just have this big Bible of potential game mechanic ideas. So mm. everyone's always thinking about what a game might look like or what a game could be and like working on projects on the side that eventually become full fledged games. Uh, bite the bullet was one of those. It was like a passion project for a couple of our developers that got other team members excited. And then it kind of grew organically internally. Um, but we also have to be, pretty careful about uh, not letting the passion take us too far to the point that we make we make poor decisions, right? Because we could work on these games forever, we could spend a bunch of money on them, um, but that might not be the thing that keeps the company going and lets us make more games in the future. Right, that's true, man. So you have, so in other words, you're talking about like you think about the brand and the audience and like just how um, you have to be sensitive of that. You're not, you can't just do the weirdest, craziest stuff. I, I think it's both, right? Um, you know, for at this point, you know, we have multiple voices in the room. So I think those multiple voices and multiple perspectives help to make those conversations a lot more three-dimensional, right? So our, we're a creative first company. So we always put that, that idea of doing the things we're passionate about and doing the things that are creatively interesting first. And that helps us kind of, it's like our guiding principle, right? But as we start to run down that path, we also have other voices that come into play that help us kind of nudge and refine it to think about what's going to be the best way to realize this idea on all fronts, right? Because, mm. you know, if we had our way and we could just do whatever we wanted, <laughs> we would do nothing but make retro games because that's like deeply what we love. But we mm. recognize that, we can release a modern title. So Bite the Bullet has a Sega Genesis prequel that'll come out with it. Oh, um, cool. So in that way, we have the modern title that gives us gets us access to the modern gaming audience across all the major platforms. But it also becomes a cultural anchor cultural anchor for us that we can use to to grow that retro community to get more people passionate about the things that we're passionate about. So it's a it's a complex process. But I feel like we attack it from both the directions you described. So thinking creative first, and then once we have this creative idea going, start to try to play out thought problem it, um, thought experiment it of if we market it this way, what does it look like? What audience cares about this most? How do we connect with them? What resonates with them? That sort of stuff. So it seems like having a team 
that you trust that communicates well is central. To, it, like the success lives and dies on that, um, on that, right? Like being in a, being able to communicate well and, um, yeah, trust that everyone's going to like do their best. I'm sure that's super important. Totally, totally. And I know we're, uh, we're running in little different lanes, but the exposure I've had with the ecosystem that you've built, it seems like you do something similar. Um, so I got to meet some of your, some of the, the business folks behind you, like uh, your agent was really cool with us when she was helping us book gigs and do things like that. Um, and then your kind of network of super rappers that you collaborate with at all times. <laughs> um, I imagine, I imagine surrounding yourself with the right people has also been a big part of how you, how you thrive. Yeah, man. And yeah. And, and your metaphor maybe is more like a band where everyone's working together on one album where, um, but yeah, I guess when I tour with the nerdcore guys, it's like we're a band too, you know? So it's, it, there's a lot of similarities that we can see in each other's work, which is cool. I, I will buy the band metaphor. I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> I'm down with it. I've always wanted to be in, be in a band, so this this helps me check that box. Well, and having hits, right? Like commercially, like your single, you want your single to chart. You want your game to be like a top b- bot game. And and so, yeah, it's, it's you want to be in the charts of gaming. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the, the financial side of it is great, right? If a game is a, a, game is a success. But really, it's that reward of someone enjoying the thing that you invested so much creatively in. You know, like when we're we're when we're at a PAX or an event like that, and you see someone just get totally geeked because they got to eat a zombie, or because they they unlock the ability to jump higher, and that, or they went into Zombro mode and they they hawked out and beat a bunch of enemies. To see like that genuine joy in someone from something that you played a part in creating, um, it's pretty spectacular. And to have that creative input then be big enough that it influences other creators, you know, because we always talk about, you know, the games that inspired us and the, the artists that inspired us. And then you reference that in your music with musicians that have inspired you and to kind of be a part of that legacy is also pretty exciting. Inspiration is the, um, yeah, that's the ultimate commodity. I mean, that's why we do this, right? Cause we were inspired to, to tell stories and, um, along that line, Marshall, I have one last question and I didn't prep you on this question, so it might be hard to answer. Oh no. What all is, right. what is your favorite video game of all time? Of and all do you have one? time. Um, yeah. Well, since you didn't prep me, I'm going to give you two. Okay. That's fine. Okay. So <laughs> I've probably spent the most amount of time playing Ultima online or link to the past. Okay. Tell me about the first one, because I wish I knew more about it. So Ultima Online was... So are you familiar with World of Warcraft? Yes. So Ultima Online was the first true MMO. Um, Mm. So first massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Uh, It was based on the Ultima franchise that uh, was super popular with PC gaming back when PC gaming first started started to rise. So like... Uh, the Ultimate series got popular because uh, Richard Garriott would self-print the floppy disks and put them in Ziploc bags and hang them up at the local PC store. Like that's that's how that's how it first started to gain popularity. Wow. Like we're not like that that far back in, in gaming history. Wow. Um, but Ultimate Online took that franchise and turned it into a persistent world. 
So when I was in uh, when I was in high school, it probably almost ruined my life. I played it so much, I got pretty addicted. That um, <laughs> was a pretty big escape for me from things like bullying and things like that. So I could just kind of mm. be the person I wanted to be in this fantasy world. So I played that for like four years straight, uh, and not exaggerating, probably close to eight ten hours a day. Um, it was a lot of gaming. It was pretty amazing, uh, pretty amazing experience. And then Link to the Past is the Super Nintendo Zelda release. Uh, still pretty popular. There's a big community around it, and there's um, still new fan-made content coming out for it. So I spent a lot of time playing Link to the Past. I love how our game has a lot of Zelda nods, especially when you were pr- we were promoting it. That's tight. I mean, it's hard not to. Uh, we talk about yeah. the cultural impact of something. Uh, the Zelda series has had a huge had a huge influence on just the way people think about pop culture, I think. And the, the resonant thesis of this conversation, it's dangerous to go alone. Right? Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I think you have your podcast title. There you go. <laughs> um, where can people follow you? Megacat Studios is the best place to go to learn more about Megacat. Uh, if you're interested in the marketing stuff, uh, you can look me up at carpercommunications.com. Um, I got some eBooks and stuff on that side. If you're, you're business minded, but really making cat studios is the, the coolest fun stuff. You should check us out there. We have a lot of free demos on our site. And like I said, check out bite the bullet on steam. If you wish list us, that'd be a huge help. And just as a, as a small note, if you like supporting indie creators and you like supporting indie video games, giving their games a follow and a wish list on steam is one of the easiest and also free ways that you can help those creators succeed. So, uh, whether you do that for us or not, that's fine. Just do it for the people that you're, you're passionate about. They'll really appreciate it. That's cool. And where where is the MC Lars game still available? Is it Can people still play it on Steam? Mm-hmm. Yeah, MC Lars is still yeah. up on Steam. Uh, I'd have to check with the Center Steel, Center Steel guys to see where else it's still available. But at least we know it's there. And the Brotherhood is there too, I think. Correct. Correct. Hopefully, yeah. Okay, cool. Well... Check out Bite the Bullet. Be sure to spread the word. And uh, Marshall, this has been a very good talk. Thank you for being on the show. This is a blast. This was a, a weird dream come true for me. It's uh, it's weird to think about listening to your your stuff when uh, when I was it was like 2004 or something. Like signing emo came out. Um, yeah, it, it's it's cool that we've got to have this conversation. We've got to become friends. I, I appreciate it, Lars. I appreciate our friendship, and I appreciate. Yeah, I wanted to just go on record. Like I know. Doing MC Lars game was a really a labor of love and it and it and you were ranked like hurting cats, especially with me and the team and the promotion. And I think it was like just it 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 was an honoring feeling to um work with someone who believed in in a project and just to see that come to come to light. So I always appreciate that you did that for me. So thank you. It's it's mutual, man. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking the jump with us. That's tight. Uh, well, check out Marshall's work. Oh, and Marshall, we should end with a song. Like, we should any song w- that you want. W- I like to end with it with a with a jam. Is there any anything you would request? Oh man, this is uh this is intense. So, do I have to sing along? Is that how that works? No, 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 no. I'll just play it on. I'll just drop it in in Logic. Mm, yeah. Mm. How about Hey There, Ophelia? Oh, okay. That's that's tight. Um. I'll play that. All right. Let's do it. All right. Good request. For the storytelling, for the creative writing majors, this is Hey There, Ophelia. And uh, check out Megacast Studios. Peace.
all about madness, less than a female. Dad's a ghost and he roams the floors. Looks at night and Elsa got a pale face just like his paint. Normal, you know this ain't something. Is rotten up in Denmark, a sickness state. My uncle Claudius, his alibi is fishy. Suspicions of murder because he's acting hella shifty. Frailty, thy name is woman, cause my mom's on his D. A-N-I-S-H, though my dad's ghost tells me Swear, swear, swear To revenge my regicide Claudius ice me one night under my crown He tries to hide So Hamlet, here's your mission Use your antic disposition Make them think you're crazy Bring justice, fuse the vision Meanwhile, my girl Ophelia is goth as hell Use a razor by her wrist Rocks out to soft sell This girl's got more issues than Amy Winehouse I'm like get the two one nunnery I'm not trying to find a spouse And she says that one and I would have stayed in Wittenberg if I known that this would happen if you're ever up in Denmark on a moonlit night you'll hear Ophelia's sad song when the full moon's bright baby I'm sorry I messed up good night my sweet princess may flights of angels sing thee to thy rest and they sing I've got nothing to do but hang around and get screwed up forget it though I've got nothing to do Yeah, thanks, buddy. Thanks, Marshall. Thanks for requesting that song. After I do the Poe LP, I'm going to do a Shakespeare LP. 
And, you know, just keep doing these projects where I focus on this lit hop because, hey, it's it works. Hey There Ophelia was one of the first songs I did for Robot Kills, and I think it holds up. The references make sense. Uh, shout out to Brett from the Donnas, and, of course, shout out to Gabe from Cobra Starship, and shout out to Matt from The Matches, who played drums on that song. Okay, let's see. Next week, we have an interview with Brian from The Gossicles. Uh, we talk about industrial music, hip-hop music. We talk about all sorts of stuff. Be sure to check that out. But before we get into that, it's time for the MC, MC Lars, Lars Patreon, Patreon Larson of, the, of week. the week. This week, we got Suzuki Bot, who calls in and tells some stories about some early memories. So this is Suzuki Bot. Thank you for your kind words. Let's hear what she has to say. Hey, Lars. It's uh, Suzuki Bot here from your Discord. Uh I've been listening to your music for about seven or eight years now, but I only went to a concert back in 2018. Uh, it was my first concert ever, and it was the Futurama tour in uh, Maleville, PA. And, you know, the time by the time I went, you were like my favorite artist ever, and I was so hyped, and I was like, Oh, man, it's going to be great. And spoiler, it was. Uh, I remember thinking when the opening act, you know, I Fight Dragons and stuff were on, I was like, okay, they're really cool. But by the time that you got out there and you, like, immediately engaged with us and made us even more hype and kept the energy going, you know, you had that showmanship and presentation that I really liked. I was like, man, this is great. This guy is pretty much everything I expected in a live show. So I remember that concert being great. You pulled up kids, little kids, and sang Mr. Raven with them. Uh, and you pulled up two guys that were wearing, and one of them was wearing a ska shirt. And you had them skating to this gigantic robot, which I thought that was really cool. And then after the show, you know, I got to talk to you. And you signed my copy of this gigantic robot, and you were really nice, and I appreciated that. Even talking to you after the show, I really appreciated. I feel like, you know, you don't get that with a lot of uh, bigger names in music when they do concerts. So that's a show that I'm never going to forget. For being my first concert ever, and it being you, and having all of those expectations, met uh it was really cool and i loved it and it makes me even more excited to go to the baby yoga tour in february uh yeah uh i hope it's as good and that you can keep those high expectations which i have no doubt that you will okay bye thank you suzuki bot I remember that show. I remember meeting you and I'm glad you had fun and I'll see you soon. And if y'all want to hang out with Suzuki bot and me, be sure to check out the upcoming tour. Thanks everyone. See you next week. Check out my interview with the Gossicles. Thank you, Marshall Carper. And please be sure to come check us out this February. If you can nerdcore new song, the friend DeLoreans debuting on Spotify. But before that, we're playing it live this tour. I'm so excited. Thank you all for listening. It's your boy MC Lars. Peace.